My brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. Reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Many of Jesus' disciples who were listening said, This saying is hard. Who can accept it? Since Jesus knew that his disciples were murmuring about this, he said to them, Does this shock you? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life, while the flesh is of no avail. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning the ones who would not believe and the one who would betray him. And he said, for this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer accompanied him. Jesus then said to the twelve, Do you also want to leave? Simon Peter answered him, Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe that and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. The Gospel of the Lord. In a matter of days, my beloved college students will be returning to campus for hopefully a, a return to normal, in-person academic year after a year where half of them were on campus and half were online in the bizarre hybrid that seemed to be the norm for everyone in all walks of life. It's a relief to be talking about them coming back and trying to, to plan and prepare for it. But that's where there's been a bit of a challenge for me with this younger generation, planning and preparing. You would think they would be raring to go to get started and focus on what to do, where to go, and have things in somewhat order. Yet in the last week, I've had kids explain with the almost exact same responses I had heard before the pandemic. I still don't know when I'm moving back to campus. I'm not sure what my class schedule is for the semester. Now, mind you, move-in starts tomorrow and classes start in about a week, and they purportedly chose those classes months ago. And it's not that the university hasn't communicated to them when the dorms are gonna reopen, or that they don't remember what they took, or they couldn't just take their phones out and instantly log into their accounts to see their schedule and see what they're registered for in terms of classes. It's that in their minds, they're not solidified. They're thinking, maybe I'll move in Monday, Maybe I'll wait till next week. When's my roommate moving in? Do I want him to get there first to pick the bed that he wants, or do I want to get there first? They're thinking about changing their schedule. Maybe I'd like to sleep in late. Maybe I'll take all my classes early so I can get a job, or I'll plan all my classes on three days so I can have two days off. 
oh wait, I heard that that teacher is harder than that one, so I'll take her instead, but that means I have to move all these other classes. We can roll our eyes at these very first world problems, especially in light of so many major ones that we're all well aware of. But it's actually a symptom of a bigger issue that affects more than my beloved kids. Among mental health experts, there has been a lot of discussion about the seriousness of what's described as analysis paralysis. The reality that a growing number of people seem incapable of making a decision simply because there's way too many options available. It sounds crazy, but it's really not, and researchers have proved this, that for example, the University of Washington did a study in a grocery store where they presented customers with a choice between a booth that had six flavors of jam that they could have a taste test with, and then another one that had 24 flavors. And the data revealed that the customers were far more likely to make a purchase from the booth that only had six than from 24. So even if one of the 24 flavors of jam was the best thing you had ever tasted, You'll never know because your brain simply can't, can't process all the different possibilities. On the surface, it seems illogical. But people tend to be more satisfied with a final decision when they have fewer choices. The psychologist Barry Schwartz argues in his book, The Paradox of Choice, that with too many possibilities, whether it's over who to date, or choosing a movie, or even picking a salad dressing, it's easy for us to imagine that we could have chosen a better one because our mind starts running through all the different scenarios and comes up with this whole combination of regret or missed opportunity or escalating expectations and then eventually self-blame that makes us miserable and dissatisfied with our decisions. It's this that causes so many to not make any choice at all, hoping to leave all doors all options, all possibilities on the table, not realizing that not making a choice is in fact a choice, a decision. This has affected people's spiritual lives as well. We have a lot of people believing that all religions are at some level just the same, just different paths to the same destination or that the distinction between Catholics and other Christians is like the difference between flavors of ice cream. We like chocolate, they like Rocky Road or strawberry. And there's been this growing view held by a majority of people who believe in God or in a power greater than themselves and has some concept of an afterlife, who will tell you that the most important thing is just to be a good person, that that's all that matters. All those things make for nice talking points that allow for polite conversations with the people of a variety of different backgrounds, all of which allows people to believe or not believe in anything, all of which leaves Catholics feeling comfortable to pop in for Mass and then maybe skip for months or weeks. But all of those thoughts and perspectives go against the Gospel, and our scriptures today make that point pretty clearly. God is being completely direct. You need to choose. And there are only two options. Follow me or leave. 
These aren't parables that have a lot of different possible meanings that we can hear differing opinions on. These aren't confusing passages that have cultural context that we need to clarify. There's no gray area because God has no and will tolerate no rivals. He will not be treated as one option among many others. If it does not please you to serve the Lord, decide today whom you will serve. Joshua, the successor of Moses, asked the people of Israel in that first reading. This is after God had saved the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, parting the Red Sea, leveling the Egyptians who had changed their minds and decided to pursue them in order to recapture them. This is after God had led them through the wilderness and provided heavenly manna, this bread that literally fell down from the heavens so that they could survive on the journey to the promised land that he had promised them and fulfilled. A journey that took far longer than it should have because of their weak faith and hearts. That in spite of that, God remained patient and faithful to them to bring them there. This is after all of that in this first reading, we find here they are in the promised land and the people are still not single-minded in their faith and their devotion to the Lord. They're still dabbling with false pagan gods that they had been exposed to as slaves in Egypt. Maybe thinking, well, I prayed for this from the Lord God and it didn't seem to happen. So maybe there's another option. Maybe there's another choice out there. Maybe there's another pagan god from Egypt I should consider. Maybe there's no god at all. Maybe I should just do whatever I want. Joshua clarifies the reality that God has given us freedom and free will. It's one of the greatest gifts and risks that the Lord God Almighty has taken with us as creatures. But there are only two options, and the people need to decide either the Lord God or not. And if it's the Lord God, we need to follow what he says or leave. This is fulfilled, as all the Old Testament is, in Jesus Christ in one of the most dramatic encounters we find in the Gospels. Apart from last Sunday, because of the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, liturgically bumping the 20th Sunday in ordinary time, for the last five weeks we've been on this mini-retreat, so to speak, with the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Five weeks ago, this all started with a huge crowd of about five to 10,000 people who thought Jesus was cool. <laughs> Jesus was great. He takes five loaves and two fish and feeds everyone to their full. Not just a small bite or something, but miraculously multiplying those five loaves and two fish so everyone would be satisfied, everyone would be full, and then ending up with 12 baskets of leftovers. The next day, a large number went after Jesus, because, not because they were blown away by such a miracle that was a sign he was God, and maybe they should listen to what else he has to say, but because they were hungry again. The people who had fish and bread for dinner wanted breakfast. And that's when Jesus began this whole discourse talking to them about what they truly need to live, both now and for all eternity was the bread of life. And not bread like manna in the desert, 
But Jesus is very flesh and blood that we need to eat. Or even more graphically, the word in Greek that is translated really means to chew. It's meant to be dramatic. It's meant to be raw. It's meant to make the listeners then and now uncomfortable. Jesus is being clear that eating, chewing, his very flesh and blood, which is what the Eucharist is, that's essential in our deciding whether we're going to follow him or not. And the listeners need to choose to decide whether they will follow or leave. And what's so dramatic that we can't miss or shouldn't miss is how John doesn't sugarcoat what happened next. Many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer accompanied him. This was a moment of departure. And Jesus doesn't sugarcoat things either. He doesn't run after them trying to convince them to keep the door open or to reconsider. He doesn't say, guys, guys, wait, maybe you didn't understand. I didn't actually mean eating and chewing my flesh and blood. I meant it's like a symbol. He never says that. Or even that it will make sense when you see it under the appearances of bread and wine. Jesus means what he says. Jesus is God, and either people will trust him, even when they don't really completely understand at the moment what he's talking about, but because they believe he's God and they want to follow him or not. And Jesus respects their decision, as disastrous as it is. And then with that, he turns to those remaining and asks them, do you also want to leave? And that's the question we're left with ourselves today. If we truly want to be followers of Christ, we have to recognize this is a, a decisive choice we're making. Jesus isn't just a flavor that we prefer among many equals, but rather Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. This is a consequential choice. Because when Jesus talks about how the flesh is to no avail, he's telling that this is the choice between living according to our flesh and our human desires and vision, which are mirrored in choices about the things of this world, which leaves us constantly calculating and reconsidering and wondering what I want, what I think is going to make me happy, and never truly being satisfied, or aligning myself according to his flesh, living a life ordered and focused on him and him alone. That doesn't mean God forgets how imperfect and broken people we are. The people of Israel say to Joshua in that first reading that they do choose the Lord God and, well, spoiler alert, they will still fail and fall for idols along the way. And God in his love and his mercy will keep making new ways for them to come back to him. Simon Peter is very clear in his words in the gospel passage today, but we know he's going to struggle and fail, as will most of the apostles and earliest of disciples. And that's true for all of us here today as well. Our choosing Jesus, our deciding that Catholic Christian faith is the clearest, consistent way of following Jesus and the church that he founded on feasting on his body and blood in the Eucharist, that doesn't mean we're not going to have doubts. It doesn't mean we're not going to struggle at times. 
individually or even collectively as a church. Sadly, it doesn't even mean the church is perfect and free of scandal and has leaders who perfectly emulate Jesus any more perfectly than each of us do individually. But it does mean I keep moving with him who is perfect. It does mean I come to Mass every Sunday for Mass. I do pray, I go to confession, I serve others in their need, even in the midst of my own struggles. It means I bring my fears and my doubts to him because I've chosen him above all others. There is no other choice and that this is a decisive and definitive choice that defines my life now and for all eternity because we too are convinced that Jesus is the Holy One of God.